So kids, who here likes to play hide and seek? Who likes to play hide and seek? Me too. I like to play hide and seek. But I'm a little bit big. It's a little bit harder to hide. Yeah? And uh, tell me, if in your house, what is the best hiding spot? Yes, Elsa. Um, we have this spinning chair upstairs and we like to hide behind that. And um, we like to hide behind that. And there's this tall side. We put that where in front of us and that's where I like to hide. So there's a spinning chair that's good to hide behind. Yeah, Mason. I, I hide in my bed. You hide in your bed? Mmm, <laughs> difficult one. Yes, Malachi. Um, sometimes my dad and mom just go up our bunk bed and hide under the blanket. They, they get up there and hide underneath there? And sometimes we go under the bunk bed, under the little. Wow, that sounds fun. Lydia? So the closet is a good hiding space, yeah? What about you, Annika? What's a good hiding spot? Um, I, I sometimes hide under my covers. Under your covers? Yeah. Yeah, sometimes we play on sick. So, like, sometimes we have a daddy, and then we go, and then he's hiding, and then, like, that sounds fun. Hiding under the covers and then surprising your parents. Yeah. Katie, did you have a good hiding spot in your house? Yeah, we, we have the, uh, I, I, I hide the, uh, behind my dad's bookshelves. Besides your bookshelves. All right. Okay, I'm going to, I need you to help me. I'm not very good at hide and seek, okay? So I'm going to try to hide right now, and you tell me if it's a good hiding spot, Okay. Can you help me with that? I gotta learn how to do hide and seek a little bit better. Okay? I have to be smaller, I can't change that, I'm sorry. Maybe I can lose some weight. So kids, is this a good hiding spot? You can't see me, right? Oh, okay. How about oh this is oh this I right here. How's this? Is that good? You can't see me, right? I can't see you. Oh. You're all looking at me. Okay. How about, is this a good hiding spot? No. You can see my feet. I'm not very good at this game, am I? You know what? In today's passage, King David in the Bible talks about God being the best hiding spot ever. That God is his fortress. That God is the best Forever, Because a good hiding spot, what does it need to be? It needs to be big enough to cover you, right? I didn't find a place big enough to cover me, did I? It needs to be strong enough that it doesn't just fall apart. It needs to be solid enough that it doesn't just get blown away. And God is definitely a hiding spot that is strong enough, big enough, solid enough to hide us when we need. And David is trying to tell us, if you're ever in danger, if you're ever hurting, that you need to find a really, really good hiding spot, and that is him, that he will protect you when you feel like you're in danger. Now, God doesn't say that bad things or hard things will never happen to us, but he says when we feel like those things are happening, that we can run to him, and that he will be our hiding spot where we can rest 
and be quiet and be safe. So I want you to remember that, that when you feel unsafe, that you can turn to God to be the best fort ever, the best hiding space. Okay? Yes, Mason. I know I didn't. Thanks for joining me, kids. Why don't you go and join your parents? Sorry, I shooed you off so quickly after you joined me. Adults, I wonder for you, where do you turn to when things are hard? What is your hiding spot when the going gets tough? When you feel like you're being attacked? When people or circumstances are against you? Where do you turn? Where is your trust? Where is your confidence? David is going to teach us today about where do we find our trust? Where do we find our safety? And we're going to see that he, God is our rock and that we are to quietly hide in him. God is our rock and we are to quietly hide in him. But we're going to run through today's um, passage in kind of a strange order, but it just made most, most sense to me when, we, when I was trying to figure out how to share this message. And there's really a beautiful simplicity to today's message. It's not really any amazing new knowledge to bring to the passage, to the structure, or to the Hebrew words, or anything like that. It's really just a simple and yet profound challenge asking the question, where do we put our trust ultimately? What are the things we turn to when we find the going gets tough? David's psalm is what we classify as a psalm of confidence, finding confidence in God. And he's declaring that. He's declaring that God is the one in whom we can find our confidence. But he's also praying that into his own heart. And so he's saying that we are to find our confidence in him. We are to trust in him when the going gets tough. And that when we're hurting, we are to turn to him. And that he's doing that very thing, modeling it for us. And we find that David is has written this psalm and, and has, has told people to worship with this song in the context where he himself has experienced great hardship, where people were against him, and he's turning to God in the midst of it. But a little bit about the context of which David is sharing this psalm, and we find that in verses 3 and 4, he says, How long will all of you attack a man to batter him, like a leaning wall, a tottering fence, the only plan to... Th- They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. So we see here, in general, this idea of how unreliable the nature of man is. And we we know David was King David, and of course he was someone who was in high position. You may not feel like you can relate to that personally as being someone in high position, but he is describing that he, as someone in high position, is, is in a sense an easy target, right? A, a target for people to blame when things are going wrong or to, to tear down out of jealousy or wickedness. David um, is being surrounded. And commentator, theologian Mark Vitato says this about this section. David was surrounded by enemies bent on his demise. These enemies were not foreigners, but those who had access to David. They blessed David with their words but all the while they were cursing him in their hearts. They took pleasure in lying about him as a part of the plan to topple him from his position. And I love that there's this contrast, actually, in this psalm. There's this contrast of talking about God being our fortress, our refuge, our rock, and yet this imagery of man being like this tottering 
fence, this leaning wall. And if you think about it, it's actually a bit scary if you think about it. If you think about it, if someone is bent against you to bring you down, it's actually pretty hard to protect yourself from that. If someone is willing to smile to your face and then curse you behind your back, it's difficult to protect against such things. And I know there are some of you who have experienced that. And David is saying, even in those circumstances, he is turning to God to be his rock in the midst of these circumstances. But David goes on to talk about we are not to trust in power and wealth to save. Verses nine, verse 9 says this, Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. In the balances they go up doesn't translate super well, but let me explain a little bit what this one verse means. Verse 9 is overall saying that man's life in comparison to God or to eternity is so finite, so fleeting, but a breath. And he says those of low estate are but a breath. And, you know, maybe we can easily agree, oh yeah, those of low estate, the poor, they're just inconsequential. They're, they don't have any influence in this life, so they're but a breath. But then David goes on to say, those of high estate are a delusion. It's easy, right, in this world to think, oh, if I'm of high estate, if I'm rich and wealthy and powerful, then, then I am something. I'm not just a breath. And yet, David is saying, you're in the same boat as those who are in a low estate. But actually, it's easy to be deluded to think that you are much more than you are. Again, in comparison to the greatness of God in the stretch of eternity. And he's saying in that second part, in the balances they go up, he says, if you were to weigh those of low estate and high estate together, even together, they, the balances go up. They, they weigh nothing. They weigh less than a breath. David's trying to remind himself and to all worshipers who would sing this song that our lives are finite and fleeting whether rich or poor, and that we need to put our trust not in the things of this world, but in God himself. He goes on to say in verse 10, Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. David goes on to, to criticize, really, wealth that is gained unethically. He, doesn't, he says, don't trust in that wealth. Don't trust in the, that wealth don't trust in wealth so much that you would be willing to extort or rob in order to gain that wealth. Now, I don't imagine or know that many of you are going out there extorting people, robbing people. But I think this verse reminds us at the same time that when we live in a broken world, we do have to ask ourselves that whether we are complicit in systems that unethically bring us wealth at the expense of others. And I do want to clarify the statement. I don't want to go into economics too much here, but I'm not saying that gaining wealth is a zero-sum game. That it has to be if you gain wealth, then someone else has to lose it. But I am saying that God calls us as Christians to continue to think about reforming structures in this world that unethically hurt people for the sake of gaining wealth. David goes on to say, in this verse, even if we gain wealth ethically, even if we become rich ethically, that we are not to set our hearts 
on that wealth. The accumulation of wealth cannot be our salvation, cannot be our hiding spot in the midst of the trials and difficulties and pain of life. We, we all know that scriptures speak to this, that we're not to put our trust in the things of this world. And in this psalm, specifically, it's a reminder not to put our trust in power or wealth, that these things too cannot bring us salvation, cannot bring us hope, cannot be our rock and refuge in times of trouble. But it's so often we can do that. And sometimes we can just say that in, in the sense that we in America, we almost all of us in some ways desire to live the American dream rather than live the biblical dream of God bringing heaven down to earth. I don't really like blasting the American dream actually, but I think there is certainly something to that, that it's so ingrained into our American culture that it's easy for us to pursue it without thought. But I want to challenge us a little bit on this idea about the American dream. I read this really interesting article this week about the evolution of the American dream by an author named Nicole Zimmerman. But she basically looks at the different generations um, and how those, what, are the, what are the things that those different generations live for. So I'm going to go through this a little bit. And some of you are going to be like, oh, I hate these generalizations about this generation and millennials and whatever. Just go with me a little bit. Okay, take it with a grain of salt. Consider if there's any truth to these um, generalizations. Okay, so the first category is the traditionalists, those who are born before 1945. I won't make you raise your hand if you're born before 1945, but that would be my father who was born before 1945. But the traditionalists, the dream is being the self-made man. And some of the icons of this self-made man will be Walt Disney, Henry Ford, John Rockefeller. And the mantra of the traditionalists is pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Okay, so if you fit this category, just consider, could this possibly be you? The next generation is the boomers, those who are born from 1946 to 1964. Also, don't argue with me about the cutoffs, okay? Like, or I'm, I'm in between, you know? Like, just take it with a grain of salt. Boomers... Um, 1946 to 1964. The dream for the boomers is the white picket fence. And icons of that are Don Draper, the Kennedys, the Cleavers, and Leave it to Beaver. And the mantra for the boomers is keeping up with the Joneses. It's this generation of great um, growth of the middle class in great numbers coming out of the war. And everyone was comparing with each other as they got the latest new thing. So, if you're a boomer, think about that. Gen Xer, that's me. Gen Xer is 1965 to 1979. The dream is the corner office, which doesn't make sense right away. So, track with me. It didn't, it didn't fit with me right away. But icons of Gen Xers are Gordon Gecko from the movie Wall Street, um, Scarface. Uh, you could say Grand Theft Auto. You could say uh, Fight Club, Pretty Woman. And the mantra for the Gen Xers is success is the best revenge. Now, I want you to think about, if you're a Gen Xer like me, think of it like grunge meets Gordon Gecko, right? Grunge is like this alternative kind of music that came out, and so it doesn't fit the corner office. But it's kind of like Gen Xers have this idea of like being subversive. And so even in 
the, the chase of the American dream or wealth, as you get older, you, you, you get tired of being the grunge lead pop star for whatever band. You're like, I need to have a life and a family and career. And so it's this idea of getting success, but in a subversive kind of way. Millennials, can I first say, I'm sorry, millennials, if you're a millennial, you get a really hard time. Like, I don't really get it, because it's like, like every generation has its strengths and weaknesses, but it's like everyone's favorite hobby to blast millennials and how lazy they are and whatever. I, don't, I just think it's silly. But millennials, 1980 to 1995, the dream is live for the journey, not the destination. And some of the icons are Mark Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg, maybe not right now, he's getting really bad press, but, um, but the idea of startups, you know, creating your own thing, this new thing. Ashley and Mary-Kate Olsen, Jared Leto. If you don't know who Jared Leto is, Jared Leto is, is probably most commonly known as an actor, but he's, he's an actor, a, you know, award-winning actor. He's the lead singer for a band, 30 Seconds to Mars. He has created his own digital marketing company, The Hive. He is a devout philanthropist. So he's this picture of the, the person who does it all, right, and, 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 and can do it all. So if you're a millennial, think about if that fits with you. Gen Edge. Actually, it's the first time I heard this term. I don't, anyway, she calls it Gen Edge. Born after 1995, the dream is having and being enough. And the icons are uh, Mala, Mala, Mala Yousafzai. I can't pronounce her name. Mala Yousafzai. Yousafzai. Someone said it better. Barack Obama and, I think, sadly, YouTube celebrities. But um, the mantra is, success isn't given it's earned. And it's interesting because Gen Edgers share many, not surprisingly, characteristics with millennials as they've come out of that, but because they've been raised by very realistic Gen X parents that they, strangely enough, share now characteristics with traditionalists and are, yes, striving for idealistic things but in a much more realistic kind of way. Now, the reason why I went through all of this is this. I think the American dream is just so much part of our culture that we unthoughtfully adopt it. And it's easy when we talk about power and wealth, and I think even maybe particularly for our congregation, to think, oh, you know, that's not something I go after. I don't really care about getting lots of power, getting lots of wealth. But I think to the degree that you can relate to these characteristics in um, these generations, I want to put it to you this way. When you have those particular goals, how much do you end up believing that power and wealth is what will help you get those things? So for traditionalists, um, you could think, I need power and wealth in order to become the self-made man. For boomers, you could say, I need power and wealth in order to get the white picket fence and claw my way out of poverty. For Gen Xers, it could be, I need power and wealth, maybe it's more obvious, to get that corner office, but yet time with my family as well, to have the freedom to have that balance. Millennials could think, I need power and wealth to live the journey well and change the world with a startup. I mean, the millennials are super idealistic, but it's hard sometimes to achieve those ideals without power and wealth. Jen Edgers could say, I need power and wealth to have 
and be enough. Every generation has probably some characteristics to it that are fair. And we might not resonate with being hungry for power and wealth. And yet we can fall into this trap because it's so much a part of our culture to think, I need power and wealth in order to achieve these other things. And in the end, what God calls us to, because God's word is ancient and rooted in the person of God, this psalm written years and years and years ago, King David is saying what has been true for all generations, and that is we are always ultimately tempted to put our trust in power and wealth and not in God himself. So let me ask you again, what do you put your confidence in? What do you put your trust in? What do you trust to make things better in your life and in this society? And of course, David gives us the answer. And of course, his answer is God. And so this points us back to this, this phrase, God is our rock. Let us quietly hide in him. Here, these words, verses 1 and 2, 5 and 6 and verse 7. 1 and 2 and 5 and 6 are very similar repetitions of each other. Just take it in. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation. My fortress I shall not be greatly shaken. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Verses 1 and 2, right, are a refrain, but with some small differences. Verse 1 says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. But verse 5 says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. Verse 5 is what we call an imperative. David is telling himself, almost commanding himself, wait in silence upon God. Trust God. Right? He had just talked about the unreliability of the nature of man, how men are trying to tear him down. And he's telling himself, he's telling his soul, wait in silence upon God alone. So we see that slight change as he goes through this psalm. We also see this change, verse 2, he says, I shall not be greatly shaken. And then verse 6, he says, I shall not be shaken. One that is, I shall not be greatly shaken, and one almost, I shall not be shaken at all. And we don't know exactly what this change means. Perhaps David is feeling greater confidence in God as he sings this psalm to God, or perhaps he's trying to sing this truth, this confidence into his own heart. Some commentators say that verse 7 is in fact the pinnacle of this psalm. And the pinnacle of that confidence that David has in God and that we should have in God. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge in God. David is saying again and again with repetition because we need that repetition to form us. God truly is the only worthy hiding place. The one who is our rock, our refuge, our fortress, our hope, our glory, our salvation. And it makes sense if we stop to step back long enough to think about what can we truly put our confidence in when we think about the vicissitudes of this world against the power of sin and death, 
that we face and in the stretch of eternity, what can power and wealth do against those things? Nothing. Nothing. Slow it down a little bit in our life, yet essentially powerless to do anything against those things. God can be the only one who we can ultimately put our trust in. Human power and wealth are unreliable and fleeting. And eventually, they usually turn against us if we trust in them. God is the one who we can wait upon quietly to trust in in the midst of trouble, a rest and a security that we can find in nothing else. I remember pretty early on in my Christian life, my grandfather passed away, my mom's dad. He was really the first loved one who had passed away since I had become a Christian. And it really rocked my faith. It was a faith crisis for me. Because it made me very tangibly think about the ideas of heaven and hell. These things that I said I believed in. And yet I had to begin to think, what, where do I think my grandfather is? Do I believe this to be true? And I didn't really have any answers. This was, I was in college. And I sought counsel from one of the pastors at my church. And he said something very simple and profound to me, which I hold to to this day. And, and he just said, only God is judged, Didi. And you just don't know one way or the other. And we have to be able to rest in that if we have faith in God. Of course, we all long for every single one who we know and love to be in heaven when life passes in this life. And yet, as we talked about even last week, we believe, well, and we proclaim in different parts of our service that a God who will not judge is not really worthy of our trust and our worship. And really no comfort in the end because it leaves us to be the judges of the people around us. And so we rest in God being the only one who knows hearts, the God who is loving and gracious. He is the one in whom we hide and trust, the one we go to to be our fort, our fortress, our salvation, trusting him to be loving and good and to make the perfect decisions. And it brings us to this last two verses, which is so important. Verses 11 and 12, he says, Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, which is just a matter of emphasis, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. The last verses, again, uh, frankly, a scary reminder for all of us that God will render to man according to his work. But yet, the power of the gospel is, yes, it holds to this truth that God will render to man according to his work, but he gives us all a way out, a salvation, a hope, and that is through Jesus Christ. That God has rendered to Jesus Christ on our behalf for all of the ways in which we've fallen short, all of the sins we've committed, all of the rebellion that we have in our hearts against him, that Jesus has taken all of that upon himself, died on the cross 
for our weaknesses and blemishes and sin, filled us with his righteousness, and set us free. And the only reason why we can trust in that is because Jesus is the one who has power, ultimate power, who is all-powerful, and yet he's also the one who is steadfast in love. He is all-loving as well. And consider this. If God was only all-powerful, we would be afraid of him because we don't know whether he'd be good one moment and bad one moment, just one moment and unjust another. And yet he'd have this great power in which we would be fearful of. If God was all loving only and not all powerful, then we would think him weak. And I have you consider even thinking, I mean, the best way we can relate to this, if we have a parent, if we can think of a parent who we know loves us with all of their heart, and yet we also know and have experienced to be weak, who won't stand up for truth, who won't stand up to protect us, who won't face the reality of brokenness in life, in the family, in ourselves as their child, we do not respect them. And that is seen every day in relationships between parent and child. A child does not respect a parent who is not strong enough to stand against a child when the child is wrong. If God is not strong enough, not powerful enough to stand against us, finite human beings who are broken, why would we worship Him? Why would we trust Him? He'd be less than Santa Claus. Even Santa Claus gives coals to the bad kids. We need a God who is both all-powerful and all-loving. And God shows that on the cross. He loved us so much that He sent His one and only Son on the cross for our sins. And yet He was powerful enough to raise from the dead, to defeat the power of sin, to defeat the power of death, and make a way for us to be restored into relationship with Him. And that is why Paul can say in Colossians 3, Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Think upon what a great treasure of truth that is, that we are hidden in Christ. Think upon who is Christ. What does it mean to be hidden in the almighty, all-powerful God who came in the flesh for our sake, who we can relate to and know and who relates to us and knows us. We are hidden in this all-powerful, all-loving God. Verse 4, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. It is Christ, in the end, who is the fulfillment of all of the Psalms, and certainly this Psalm, that God, through Jesus Christ, is our refuge, our rock, our fortress, our glory, our hope, our salvation. It's a simple truth. There's nothing fancy to say about it, really. Other than we know in our hearts we are always drawn to power and wealth, whether it's our accumulating it for ourselves or trusting in someone else's power and wealth to deliver us from the pain of this world. We have believed the lie 
that power and wealth is what will deliver us from the brokenness of this life. And God says, no, it won't. It is passing. It is fleeting. Only God is the one who can be our rock, who is worthy of our worship. I hope for you this week simply that you would do this, that you pray this psalm as a prayer, to say these words again and again, pointing your own hearts to God, praying confidence in God into your own heart so that you may know and experience that God is the best hiding place. He is the best fort. He is the one in whom you can find rest and quiet your heart before. Let's pray.